0: Chapter One, Part B of the Wealth of Nations Book Four. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org Recording by Stephen Ascalera, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Four, Chapter 1, Part B of the Principle of the Commercial or Mercantile System. It is not always necessary to accumulate gold and silver in order to enable a country to carry on foreign wars and to maintain fleets and armies in distant countries. Fleets and armies are maintained not with gold and silver, but with consumable goods. The nation which, from the annual produce of its domestic industry, from the annual revenue arising out of its lands and labor and consumable stock, has wherewithal to purchase those consumable goods in distant countries, can maintain foreign wars there. A nation may purchase the pay and provisions of an army in a distant country three different ways. By sending abroad either, first, some part of its accumulated gold and silver, or, secondly, some part of the annual produce of its manufacturers, or, last of all, some part of its annual produce. THE GOLD AND SILVER WHICH CAN PROPERLY BE CONSIDERED AS ACCUMULATED OR STORED UP IN ANY COUNTRY MAY BE DISTINGUISHED INTO THREE PARTS. FIRST, THE CIRCULATING MONEY. SECONDLY, THE PLATE OF PRIVATE FAMILIES. AND, LAST OF ALL, THE MONEY WHICH MAY HAVE BEEN COLLECTED BY MANY YEARS' PARSIMONY AND LAID UP IN THE TREASURY OF THE PRINCE. IT CAN SELDOM HAPPEN THAT MUCH CAN BE SPARED FROM THE CIRCULATING MONEY OF THE COUNTRY, BECAUSE IN THAT THERE CAN SELDOM BE MUCH REDUNDANCY. The value of goods annually bought and sold in any country requires a certain quantity of money to circulate and distribute them to their proper consumers, and can give employment to no more. The channel of circulation necessarily draws to itself a sum sufficient to fill it, and never admits any more. Something, however, is generally withdrawn from this channel in the case of foreign war. By the great number of people who are maintained abroad, fewer are maintained at home. Fewer goods are circulated there, and less money becomes necessary to circulate them. An extraordinary quantity of paper money of some sort or other, too, such as exchequer notes, navy bills, and bank bills, in England, is generally issued upon such occasions, and, by supplying the place of circulating gold and silver, gives an opportunity of sending a greater quantity of it abroad. All this, however, could afford but a poor resource for maintaining a foreign war, of great expense, and several years' duration. The melting down of the plate of private families has, upon every occasion, been found a still more insignificant one. The French, in the beginning of the last war, did not derive so much advantage from this expedient as to compensate the loss of the fashion the accumulated treasures of the prince have in former times afforded a much greater and more lasting resource in the present times if you accept the king of prussia to accumulate treasures seems to be no part of the policy of european princes The funds which maintain the foreign wars of the present century, the most expensive, perhaps, which history records, seems to have had little dependency upon the exportation either of the circulating money, or of the plate of private families, or of the treasure of the prince. The last French war cost Great Britain upwards of ninety million pounds, including not only the seventy-five million pounds of new debt that was contracted, but the additional two shillings in the pound land tax and what was annually borrowed of the sinking fund. More than two-thirds of this expense were laid out in distant countries, in Germany, Portugal, America, and the ports of the Mediterranean, in the East and West Indies. The kings of England had no accumulated treasure. We never heard of any extraordinary quantity of plate being melted down. The circulating gold and silver of the country had not been supposed to exceed eighteen million pounds. Since the late recoinage of the gold, however, it is believed to have been a good deal underrated. Let us suppose, therefore, according to the most exaggerated computation which I remember to have either seen or heard of, that, gold and silver together, it amounted to thirty million pounds. Had the war been carried on by means of our money, the whole of it must, even according to this computation, have been sent out and returned again at least twice in a period of between six and seven years should this be supposed it would afford the most decisive argument to demonstrate how unnecessary it is for government to watch over the preservation of money since upon this supposition the whole money of the country must have gone from it and returned to it again two different times in so short a period without anybody's knowing anything of the matter the channel of circulation however never appeared more empty than usual during any part of this period Few people wanted money who had wherewithal to pay for it. The profits of foreign trade, indeed, were greater than usual during the whole war, but especially towards the end of it. This occasioned what it always occasions, a general overtrading in all the ports of Great Britain. And this again occasioned the usual complaint of the scarcity of money, which always follows overtrading. Many people wanted it, who had neither wherewithal to buy it, nor credit to borrow it and because the debtors found it difficult to borrow, the creditors found it difficult to get payment. Gold and silver, however, were generally to be had for their value by those who had that value to give for them. The enormous expense of the late war, therefore, must have been chiefly defrayed not by the exportation of gold and silver, but by that of British commodities of some kind or other when the government or those who acted under them contracted with a merchant for a remittance to some foreign country he would naturally endeavour to pay his foreign correspondent upon whom he granted a bill by sending abroad rather commodities than gold and silver if the commodities of great britain were not in demand in that country he would endeavour to send them to some other country in which he could purchase a bill upon that country THE TRANSPORTATION OF COMMODITIES, WHEN PROPERLY SUITED TO THE MARKET, IS ALWAYS ATTENDED WITH A CONSIDERABLE PROFIT, WHEREAS THAT OF GOLD AND SILVER IS SCARCE EVER ATTENDED WITH ANY. WHEN THOSE METALS ARE SENT ABROAD IN ORDER TO PURCHASE FOREIGN COMMODITIES, THE MERCHANT'S PROFIT ARISES NOT FROM THE PURCHASE, BUT FROM THE SALE OF THE RETURNS. BUT WHEN THEY ARE SENT ABROAD merely TO PAY A DEBT, HE GETS NO RETURNS AND CONSEQUENTLY NO PROFIT he naturally therefore exerts his invention to find out a way of paying his foreign debts rather by the exportation of commodities than by that of gold and silver the great quantity of british goods exported during the course of the late war without bringing back any returns is accordingly remarked by the author of the present state of the nation besides the three sorts of gold and silver above mentioned there is in all great commercial countries a good deal of bullion alternately imported and exported for the purposes of foreign trade this bullion as it circulates among different commercial countries in the same manner as the national coin circulates in every country may be considered as the money of the great mercantile republic the national coin receives its movement and direction from the commodities circulated within the precincts of each particular country the money in the mercantile republic, from those circulated from different countries. Both are employed in facilitating exchanges, the one between different individuals of the same, the other between those of different nations. Part of this money of the great mercantile republic may have been, and probably was, employed in carrying on the late war. In time of a general war, it is natural to suppose that a movement and direction should be impressed upon it, different from what it usually follows in profound peace that it should circulate more about the seat of the war and be more employed in purchasing there and in the neighbouring countries the pay and provisions of the different armies but whatever part of this money of the mercantile republic great britain may have annually employed in this manner it must have been annually purchased either with british commodities or with something else that had been purchased with them which still brings us back to commodities to the annual produce of the land and labour of the country as the ultimate resources which enabled us to carry on the war it is natural indeed to suppose that so great an annual expense must have been defrayed from a great annual produce the expense of seventeen sixty one for example amounted to more than nineteen million pounds No accumulation could have supported so great an annual profusion. There is no annual produce, even of gold and silver, which could have supported it. The whole gold and silver annually imported into both Spain and Portugal, according to the best accounts, does not commonly much exceed six million pounds sterling, which in some years would scarce have paid four months' expense of the late war. The commodities most proper for being transported to distant countries, in order to purchase there either the pay and provisions of an army, or some part of the money of the mercantile republic to be employed in purchasing them, seem to be the finer and more improved manufactures, such as contain a great value in small bulk, and can therefore be exported to a great distance at little expense. A country whose industry produces a great annual surplus of such manufactures, which are usually exported to foreign countries, may carry on for many years a very expensive foreign war, without either exporting any considerable quantity of gold and silver, or even having any such quantity to export. A considerable part of the annual surplus of its manufactures must, indeed, in this case, be exported without bringing back any returns to the country, though it does to the merchant the government purchasing of the merchant his bills upon foreign countries in order to purchase there the pay and provisions of an army. Some part of this surplus, however, may still continue to bring back a return. The manufacturers during the war will have a double demand upon them, and be called upon first to work up goods to be sent abroad for paying the bills drawn upon foreign countries for the pay and provisions of the army and, secondly, to work up such as are necessary for purchasing the common returns that had usually been consumed in the country. In the midst of the most destructive foreign war, therefore, the greater part of manufacturers may frequently flourish greatly, and, on the contrary, they may decline on the return of peace. They may flourish amidst the ruin of their country, and begin to decay upon the return of its prosperity. The different state of many different branches of the British manufacturers during the late war, and for some time after the peace, may serve as an illustration of what has been just now said. No foreign war of great expense or duration could conveniently be carried on by the exportation of the rude produce of the soil. The expense of sending such a quantity of it into a foreign country as might purchase the pay and provisions of an army would be too great. Few countries, too, produce much more rude produce than what is sufficient for the subsistence of their own inhabitants. To send abroad any great quantity of it, therefore, would be to send abroad a part of the necessary subsistence of the people. It is otherwise with the exportation of manufactures. The maintenance of the people employed in them is kept at home, and only the surplus part of their work is exported. Mr. Hume frequently takes notice of the inability of the ancient kings of England to carry on, without interruption, any foreign war of long duration. The English in those days had nothing wherewithal to purchase the pay and provisions of their armies in foreign countries, but either the rude produce of the soil, of which no considerable part could be spared from the home consumption, or a few manufactures of the coarsest kind, of which, as well as of the rude produce, the transportation was too expensive. This inability did not arise from the want of money, but of the finer and more improved manufactures. Buying and selling was transacted by means of money in England then as well as now. The quantity of circulating money must have borne the same proportion to the number and value of purchases and sales usually transacted at that time, which it does to those transacted at present or rather it must have borne a greater proportion because there was then no paper which now occupies a great part of the employment of gold and silver among nations to whom commerce and manufactures are little known the sovereign upon extraordinary occasions can seldom draw any considerable aid from his subjects for reasons which shall be explained hereafter it is in such countries therefore that he generally endeavours to accumulate a treasure as the only resource against such emergencies Independent of this necessity, he is, in such a situation, naturally disposed to the parsimony requisite for accumulation. In that simple state, the expense even of a sovereign is not directed by the vanity which delights in the gaudy finery of a court, but is employed in bounty to his tenants, and hospitality to his retainers. But bounty and hospitality very seldom lead to extravagance, though vanity almost always does. Every Tartar chief, accordingly, has a treasure. The treasures of Maziape, chief of the Cossacks in the Ukraine, the famous ally of Charles the Twelfth, are said to have been very great. The French kings of the Merovingian race had all treasures. When they divided their kingdom among their different children, they divided their treasures too. The Saxon princes, and the first kings after the conquest, seem likewise to have accumulated treasures. The first exploit of every new reign was commonly to seize the treasure of the preceding king, as the most essential measure for securing the succession. The sovereigns of improved and commercial countries are not under the same necessity of accumulating treasures, because they can generally draw from their subjects extraordinary aids upon extraordinary occasions. They are likewise less disposed to do so. They naturally, perhaps necessarily, follow the mode of the times, and their expense comes to be regulated by the same extravagant vanity which directs that of all the other great proprietors in their dominions. The insignificant pageantry of their court becomes every day more brilliant, and the expense of it not only prevents accumulation, but frequently encroaches upon the funds destined for more necessary expenses. What Dersilidus said of the court of Persia may be applied to that of several European princes, that he saw there much splendor, but little strength, and many servants, but few soldiers. The importation of gold and silver is not the principal, much less the sole benefit, which a nation derives from its foreign trade. Between whatever places foreign trade is carried on, they all of them derive two distinct benefits from it. It carries out that surplus part of the produce of their land and labour for which there is no demand among them, and brings back in return for it something else for which there is a demand. It gives a value to their superfluities by exchanging them for something else, which may satisfy a part of their wants and increase their enjoyments. By means of it, the narrowness of the home market does not hinder the division of labour in any particular branch of art or manufacture from being carried to the highest perfection. By opening a more extensive market for whatever part of the produce of their labor may exceed the home consumption, it encourages them to improve its productive power and to augment its annual produce to the utmost, and thereby to increase the real revenue and wealth of the society. These great and important services foreign trade is continually occupied in performing to all the different countries between which it is carried on, they all derive great benefit from it, though that in which the merchant resides generally derives the greatest, as he is generally more employed in supplying the wants and carrying out the superfluities of his own than of any other particular country. To import the gold and silver which may be wanted into the countries which have no mines is, no doubt, a part of the business of foreign commerce. It is, however, a most insignificant part of it. A country which carried on foreign trade merely upon this account could scarce have occasion to freight a ship in a century. It is not by the importation of gold and silver that the discovery of America has enriched Europe. By the abundance of the American mines those metals have become cheaper. A service of plate can now be purchased for about a third part of the corn, or a third part of the labor, which it would have cost in the fifteenth century. With the same annual expense of labour and commodities, Europe can annually purchase about three times the quantity of plate which it could have purchased at that time. But when a commodity comes to be sold for a third part of what had been its usual price, not only those who purchased it before can purchase three times their former quantity, but it is brought down to the level of a much greater number of purchasers, perhaps to more than ten, perhaps to more than twenty times the former number. So that there may be in Europe, at present, not only more than three times, but more than twenty or thirty times the quantity of plate which would have been in it, even in its present state of improvement, had the discovery of the American mines never been made. So far Europe has, no doubt, gained a real conveniency, though surely a very trifling one. The cheapness of gold and silver renders those metals rather less fit for the purposes of money than they were before. In order to make the same purchases, we must load ourselves with a greater quantity of them, and carry about a shilling in our pocket where a groat would have done before. It is difficult to say which is most trifling, this inconveniency, or the opposite conveniency. Neither the one, nor the other, could have made any very essential change in the state of Europe. The discovery of America, however, certainly made a most essential one, By opening a new and inexhaustible market to all the commodities of Europe, it gave occasion to new divisions of labour and improvements of art, which in the narrow circle of the ancient commerce could never have taken place, for want of a market to take off the greater part of their produce. The productive powers of labour were improved, and its produce increased in all the different countries of Europe, and together with it the real revenue and wealth of the inhabitants. The commodities of Europe were almost all new to America, and many of those of America were new to Europe. A new set of exchanges, therefore, began to take place, which had never been thought of before, and which should naturally have proved as advantageous to the new as it certainly did to the old continent. The savage injustice of the Europeans rendered an event which ought to have been beneficial to all, ruinous and destructive to several of those unfortunate countries. The discovery of a passage to the East Indies by the Cape of Good Hope, which happened much about the same time, opened perhaps a still more extensive range to foreign commerce than even that of America, notwithstanding the greater distance. There were but two nations in America, in any respect superior to the savages, and these were destroyed almost as soon as discovered. The rest were mere savages. But the empires of China, Indostan, Japan, as well as several others in the East Indies, without having richer mines of gold or silver, were, in every other respect, much richer, better cultivated, and more advanced in all arts and manufactures than either Mexico or Peru, even though we should credit what plainly deserves no credit the exaggerated accounts of the Spanish writers concerning the ancient state of those empires. But rich and civilized nations can always exchange to a much greater value with one another than with savages and barbarians. Europe, however, has hitherto derived much less advantage from its commerce with the East Indies than from that with America. The Portuguese monopolized the East India trade to themselves for about a century, and it was only indirectly and through them that the other nations of Europe could either send out or receive any goods from that country. When the Dutch, in the beginning of the last century, began to encroach upon them, they vested their whole East India commerce in an exclusive company. The English, French, Swedes, and Danes have all followed their example, so that no great nation of Europe has ever yet had the benefit of a free commerce to the East Indies. No other reason need be assigned why it has never been so advantageous as the trade to America, which, between almost every nation of Europe and its own colonies, is free to all its subjects. The exclusive privileges of those East India companies, their great riches, the great favour and protection which these have procured them from their respective governments, have excited much envy against them. This envy has frequently represented their trade as altogether pernicious, on account of the great quantities of silver which it every year exports from the countries from which it is carried on. The parties concerned have replied that their trade by this continual exportation of silver might indeed tend to impoverish Europe in general, but not the particular country from which it was carried on, because, by the exportation of a part of the returns to other European countries it annually brought home a much greater quantity of that metal than it carried out. Both the objection and the reply are founded in the popular notion which I have been just now examining. It is, therefore, unnecessary to say anything further about either. By the annual exportation of silver to the East Indies, plate is probably somewhat dearer in Europe than it otherwise might have been, and coined silver probably purchases a larger quantity both of labor and commodities. The former of these two effects is a very small loss, the latter a very small advantage, both too insignificant to deserve any part of the public attention. The trade to the East Indies, by opening a market to the commodities of Europe, or, what comes nearly to the same thing, to the gold and silver which is purchased with those commodities, must necessarily tend to increase the annual production of European commodities, and consequently the real wealth and revenue of Europe. That it has hitherto increased them so little is probably owing to the restraints which it everywhere labours under. I thought it necessary, though at the hazard of being tedious, to examine at full length this popular notion that wealth consists in money or in gold and silver. Money, in common language, as I have already observed, frequently signifies wealth. And this ambiguity of expression has rendered this popular notion so familiar to us, that even they who are convinced of its absurdity, are very apt to forget their own principles, and in the course of their reasonings, to take it for granted as a certain and undeniable truth. Some of the best English writers upon commerce set out with observing that the wealth of a country consists, not in its gold and silver only, but in its lands, houses, and consumable goods of all different kinds. In the course of their reasonings, however, the lands, houses, and consumable goods seem to slip out of their memory, and the strain of their argument frequently supposes that all wealth consists in gold and silver, and that to multiply those metals is the great object of national industry and commerce. The two principles being established, however, that wealth consisted in gold and silver, and that those metals could be brought into a country which had no mines, only by the balance of trade, or by exporting to a greater value than it imported. It necessarily became the great object of political economy to diminish as much as possible the importation of foreign goods for home consumption, and to increase as much as possible the exportation of the produce of domestic industry. Its two great engines for enriching the country, therefore, were restraints upon importation and encouragement to exportation. The restraints upon importation were of two kinds. First, restraints upon the importation of such foreign goods for home consumption as could be produced at home from whatever country they were imported. Secondly, restraints upon the importation of goods of almost all kinds from those particular countries with which the balance of trade was supposed to be disadvantageous. Those different restraints consisted sometimes in high duties, and sometimes in absolute prohibitions. Exportation was encouraged sometimes by drawbacks, sometimes by bounties, sometimes by advantageous treaties of commerce with foreign states, and sometimes by the establishment of colonies in distant countries. Drawbacks were given upon two different occasions. When the home manufacturers were subject to any duty or excise, either the whole or a part of it was frequently drawn back upon their exportation and when foreign goods liable to a duty were imported in order to be exported again either the whole or a part of this duty was sometimes given back upon such exportation bounties were given for the encouragement either of some beginning manufactures or of such sorts of industry of other kinds as were supposed to deserve particular favour By advantageous treaties of commerce, particular privileges were procured in some foreign state for the goods and merchants of the country, beyond what were granted to those of other countries. By the establishment of colonies in distant countries, not only particular privileges, but a monopoly was frequently procured for the goods and merchants of the country which established them. The two sorts of restraints upon importation above mentioned, together with these four encouragements to exportation, constitute the six principal means by which the commercial system proposes to increase the quantity of gold and silver in any country, by turning the balance of trade in its favour. I shall consider each of them in a particular chapter, and, without taking much farther notice of their supposed tendency to bring money into the country, I shall examine chiefly what are likely to be the effects of each of them upon the annual produce of its industry. According as they tend either to increase or diminish the value of this annual produce, they must evidently tend either to increase or diminish the real wealth and revenue of the country. End of book four, chapter one, part b.